Welcome to Rob's Reliability Project, a podcast for maintenance and reliability people to better themselves both at home and at work. Now let's get rolling. Welcome to Rob's Reliability Project. I'm Rob Kalvaroski. On this week's episode, I welcome Ed Duda from Deskcase to talk about lubrication excellence. We discuss lubricant, storage and handling. We discuss desiccant breathers. We discuss filter filter carts, and we discuss ISO cleanliness codes. There's a lot of good information in this, and lubrication is one of those quick wins that you can find in your corporation to really get the ball rolling on reliability initiatives. You're going to start hearing some advertising on the podcast, and if you look at the other content, you might see it there as well. That's because I'm hoping to outsource some of the administrative work that comes with producing content that I produce. If your company sells products or services to maintenance and reliability professionals and you're looking to spread the word about your products and services within the community, definitely send me an email and tell your marketing manager about Rob's Reliability Project. Send me an email, robsreliabilityproject at gmail.com, and we can definitely discuss some advertising options for your company so we can work together. Finally, if there are any topics, guests you'd like to hear from, questions you want answered, or if you'd like to appear on the podcast, send me an email to robsreliabilityproject at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and here's the interview with Ed Duda. Hey guys, we're back, and today we got a special guest, Ed Duda from Deskcase. Ed, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on, Rob. No, thanks for coming on. And, and, you know, we were just talking before you jumped on, you mentioned you're out in Nashville. What do you think about Ryan Tannehill starting for the Tennessee Titans? You know, it's a big move. Um, I'm pretty excited, especially with the, you know, whenever you talk about bringing in another quarterback and, and even, you know, other players as a team, um, you know, that's big, big in the football world. And, and for, for me personally, it's always seen the, it's always awesome to see great players come, uh, you know, join a team and, you know, just timing's right. And I'm looking forward to the season. Yeah. And I mean, he's, he's looked really good. Like as we're recording this, um, you know, it's, he's played, I think two or three games in a row and he's looked like a world beater. So (laughs) (laughs) yeah, absolutely. Awesome. So Ed, so for everyone listening, Ed is a technical consultant for Deskcase. Now, before we jump into it, obviously, if anyone wants to learn more about Deskcase products, just go to deskcase.com, D-E-S-C-A-S-E.com. Now, Ed, let's, before we get started into the, you know, deep dives of lubrication, let's talk about you. How'd you get your start in maintenance and reliability? Yeah. So, you know, after graduating college and just really trying to hone in on, you know, what those next steps are, it's, it's been a fun adventure. Um, I have, I've had the opportunity to work for a energy company and a mining company uh, before coming to desk case. And, you know, in, in both roles, uh, I spent a great deal working with people and uh, on both sides, the operation and maintenance track, but, you know, for, for the time I was in Arizona working for Freeport McMoran Copper and Gold, they, you know, really took me in and allowed me to grow in a path that I wanted to grow. And, you know, I started in 
in the engineering department and then worked my way into the operations and maintenance department, which allowed me to experience not only how do you implement projects from the engineering side and have the perspective from the front line as well as the management, but also get my hands dirty and, and really help solve problems. You know, when I was in the operations role, I spent a year and a half doing shift work and working, you know, when it's 2 a.m. and something goes wrong operationally or uh, on the maintenance side, you know, you're responsible unless you want to make that important phone call to wake someone up. And that's that's always the last resort. But it's been fun. And from that, I've been able to transfer that experience as well as the language of how, you know, you you go about and, and help people, you know, just making it realistic. And when you have experience to back it up, it makes the world of a difference. And I'm grateful for that experience. I'm definitely thankful, especially this time of year, to uh, be able to have the role I have. And, and since then, you know, I've been able to expand that from anywhere from 100 to 150 sites, just, you know, helping others, uh, you know, achieve their reliability and maintenance goals now. And it's been fun. So that's where I started. And I look forward to the future. Yeah, absolutely. And and like for people listening, like I obviously I got my start in reliability and mining as well. And then I spent about five years in a consulting role, which our biggest customers were all mines as well, like mines, including oil sands mining. And to me, I think that my I mean, mining's a great place to start. There's a lot of one, there's a lot of money in it. Obviously, that's only when times are good, but there's a lot of money in it when uh, for reliability programs versus some of these other sectors. Like I've gone to some pulp and paper sites and uh, some manufacturing and they're, they're run very lean and the reliability programs a little bit less developed. Like what, what do you, how do you find it, Ed? Yeah, no, I, I find it the, the same. And, and I think you hit the nail on the head. They have the money because it matters uh, when it comes to unit cost and trying to drive down what it costs to move a pound of copper, an ounce of gold, you know, a pound of um, molybdenum, whatever, whatever ore that they're they're finding, they're always investing time and money to do the same, and and it ultimately comes down to, you know, availability, uh, reducing downtime, increasing OEE, increasing production, and you know, I love that because it's really the starting ground, and I feel like one of the pivotal foundations to uh, this field of reliability and maintenance. Absolutely. Now, Ed, obviously, like we wanted to have you on to talk a little bit about lubrication. And on this show, we've talked a lot about, you know, oil analysis. Um, We've talked a little bit about lubricant degradation. But, you know, one of Desk Case's core kind of products is like the breathers as well as the the storage and handling, um, I think, the Isolink products. Do you want to just give us a little background about, you know, what's lubrication excellence? What should we be looking for in terms of storage and handling? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, when we talk about lubrication excellence, it's really about trying to have a holistic approach here. Um, You know, every time that, you know, we want to make a step, no matter what field or what avenue we're trying to go, we have to start with what does best class look like? What does world class look like? And, Every time you you try to go achieve world class scenarios, it, you always have to figure out where the beginning is. And fortunately for us, the roadmap's been set. 
And if you think about how a lubricant comes into the door once it reaches your site, that's where lubrication excellence starts. And it's really about handling the lubricant from cradle to grave in every piece of um, this map. And from the time it gets into the door, from the time it, it gets to the equipment, from the time that it's being sampled, and then from the time that it's fully been used up and ready to be discarded, lubrication excellence is all about handling the lubricant from the beginning to the end. And, you know, speaking about lubricant storage and handling, you know, just that one topic, you could spend an hour or two hours or three hours, depending on who you're talking to, what the goal is of the conversation. And primarily that's where, you know, we like to start just because, you know, when it, when lubricants come in the door, that's the cleanest and the driest and the most useful the oil's ever going to be in its life, especially during this whole life cycle of actually using it. Yeah. And I think that that's, I mean, there's one thing there that people need to be aware of is that depending on, you know, what you order from the lubricant supplier, you're typically going to have to filter it before it goes into storage because it's not always as clean as you hope. And I've seen, I've seen some on the, the bulk shipment side, because usually the, the tanker truck itself is not well cleaned out. You can get some water, you can get some dirt in there, or even sometimes some chemical contaminants. So it's definitely to start off your process is definitely, we talk about quarantining oils too, and it's something to, to just be aware of. Yes. And that you hit the nail on the head, Rob. Awesome. So, so Ed, I mean, we talk about, you know, storage and handling and kind of these rules of like clean, cool and dry and these types of things. Like, do you, do you have any, like, what should we be focused on in terms of storing an, a lubricant? Yeah. So first in, first out is the first thing that comes to my mind, because a lot of the times when we get lubricants in, we're throwing them into a corner. We are, you know, packing them away in a very tight space. And a lot of the times we are putting two to three year old oil into our million dollar machines. And when it's been sitting for that long, you don't know what's going on with the additive package. The base oil could be, you know, so contaminated that it's degraded. Um, a lot of what we're, you know, trying to do is to make sure that you're, you're utilizing the oil that you paid for and oil's not cheap anymore, especially when you look at, you know, these continuing rising prices and, you know, it can be, it can range anywhere from $18 to $40 a gallon, depending on what you're buying and whether it's a, uh, a mineral oil versus a synthetic or even a food grade. So always trying to make sure your inventory is well mixed as well as used in a timely fashion. So first in, first out helps. And that's one of the, the critical pieces here. And that's where if you end up you going to more of a bulk system to where you were talking about the truck, it makes it easier than utilizing a package lubricant. Now, in sometimes, and in some cases, it's not always beneficial to the customer because they only use maybe 100 gallons a year. So package lubricants are still okay, but... Every side has, whether it's bulk or package, has a pro and a con. And first in, first out seems seems to be where the most opportunity is for most plants. 
<laughs> and, and you know, for me, when when you talk about first in, first out, especially in when we're talking, like obviously in bulk storage, you're not really going to have much effect towards that. But with the barrels, at least uh, to me, it's lubricant room design. Like, how do you see that design helping that process? Yeah. So, I mean, just going from you know barrels and trying to maintain barrels, it's it's quite a bit and it takes quite a bit of work. So, you know, typically, you know, you're looking at, you know, trying to find always having a pump and a filter whenever possible. Uh, you already mentioned filter, filtering the oil or kidney loop filtration, which allows you to turn the oil over a certain amount of times. You know, best in class says anywhere from six to 10 times you want to turn that oil just before uh, even using it or taking it out in the field. Now, as you also mentioned, you know, the, the oil coming into your plant is not going to be as clean as desired. And that comes down to our ISO cleanliness standards. And ultimately, you know, when we're talking about ISO codes and really trying to achieve those, you're going to need, you're going to need equipment to do that. And when it comes to what does it cost and what kind of ROI am I going to get out of it? It's, it's crazy and sort of insane on the amount of money you spend versus the amount of money you actually get back from doing this, which helps build the business case. <laughs> yeah. The business case is a big thing right now. I guess we'll have to go back a little bit to basics. So do you want to just break down what ISO code is and, you know, the different micron sizes of the, of the code itself? Sure. So the ISO code, it's a three digit code. It's measuring the particles greater than four microns. Then it's got a, another number greater than six microns. And then another number greater than 14 microns. The purpose of the code is so that everyone can speak the same language. Now, if you have a number, that number is not the amount of particles you have in your oil. It's actually a number that's considered a range number that tells you how many particles per milliliter you have in a solution or, or in oil in this case. So if you think about, you know, an ISO code of 18, 16, 13, for that 18, you're looking at anywhere from 1,300 to 2,500 particles per milliliter. Now you scale that up to per gallon, it's in the millions and billions of particles just for a gallon of oil. Now, you know, industry says, and, and this has been, you know, documented and recorded, it only takes a teaspoon of dirt to, for a 55-gallon drum to have a billion particles in that drum. That's a lot of dirt. Other people have said it's an aspirin. You cut the aspirin up, you drop it in, it's really dirty. And that ISO code gives us a, a way to measure what's actually uh, inside of our oil from a dirtiness perspective. And then you also have another, you know, measurable component, which is PPM of water, percent of water. You know, that's going to be measured using the Carl Fisher. It's just the most, most common test out there. You have other tests, but that's going to be allow you to get down to 10 PPM in a measurement. And ultimately that's going to tell you how, how much water do you have in your system? Now, most bearings are, you know, very sensitive to water in the range at which you want to be at is anywhere from uh, 100 ppm and below. Obviously, the drier and the cleaner you are, the better. But it comes down to making sure that we have the least amount of contaminants as possible. 
Absolutely. I love it. That was a great explanation. And I think that, you know, for me, if you're kind of jumping back to the to the ROI portion of it, there's kind of two aspects to ROI. So there's the there's the can you save an oil uh, an oil change? And sometimes that is because there's too much dirt. I mean, in my experience, what I've seen people change oil most for is contamination, whether that's dirt, whether that's water, whether that's fuel, coolant, uh, process, whatever. And so that's one aspect to it, right? So if you can get a filter cart, you can filter out that dirt, maybe you can push that oil a bit longer. The other aspect to proving ROI for a lubricant is life extension of your component. And so some of the stuff you mentioned, Ed, about how much water you can tolerate, how much dirt you can tolerate. I think Noria has a has a chart that you can look at based on ISO code. It tells you kind of a little bit of life extension or forecasted life extension based on going from an ISO code of, let's say, 2220 to 1816. And so if you're looking to put a business case together, I would definitely recommend checking those two things out. And that'll really that'll really help you put some numbers together. Yeah. And, you know, one of the just real quick, one of the cool things about, you know, this industry and, and when we're talking about lubrication excellence, you know, a lot of the research was actually done, um, you know, in a book was back in the, you know, early, early 70s and even 80s to where this started to take up and, and probably even, you know, before that. But there was a book called The Encyclopedia of Contamination Control. And that's where you're going to find you know, charts that are being used today and where all the data was, you know, where, where all the data came from. And you're right, those life extension charts, they're critical. Those need to be posted in your plant, in the loop room, just so that, you know, people can have a visual of what you can go to. And there's also graphs that show you, you know, what's the relative component life and more of a visual representation. If you're not just focused on a chart with numbers, you'll be able to see the exponential decrease in life if your dirt, if your oil is very dirty. And I always find those, those two tools together, uh, very, very helpful because some people have a visual, you know, cue. And for me personally, I'm a visual person and I like to see the charts. Absolutely. Now, Ed, so oil comes in, we filter it, we put it in storage. Now, what are some of the best practices to get that from storage to actually in our equipment? Yeah. So our goal is to keep it clean and dry. And if you're using open top off containers or non sealed top off containers or using funnels or, you know, transferring oil, you know, using just a drum that's not protected or a tote that's not protected, because let's be honest, the package at which we use to transfer oil, it doesn't matter anymore. Well, what matters is that it's protected so that it maintains its cleanliness and maintains a low water content. And in order to transfer oil in, if you think about precision lubrication and lubrication excellence in a precise manner, as well as trying to have this world-class lubrication program, if we can keep the lubricant clean and dry and we use a pump and a filter, doesn't matter what pack, what package we use, whether it's a, a five you know, gallon pail, if, it, if it's modified correctly, or a 10 liter pail, uh, such as what you mentioned, the ISO link, or even a 55 gallon drum or a 330 gallon tote. 
any any package as long as you're, it's protected and using a pump and a filter and utilizing quick connect technology that is going to allow you to maintain your cleanliness codes as well as your water content in you know as you're transferring from from the storage to one of those containers or one of those containers to the equipment if you can eliminate any exposure to the atmosphere you're going to maintain the cleanliness target now Typically, though, what we say is every time you transfer oil, you're going to lose one cleanliness code. So if you're pre-filtering your oil for a gearbox and you know it needs to be at 18, 16, 13 in application, if you're pre-filtering it to 18, 16, 13, even though you're transferring it from a clean and dry reservoir to the application, it could still potentially lose an ISO code. So typically what we like to do in the lubricant storage and handling room or wherever we're storing our lubricants, we want to get it as clean as possible. So if we can get our gear unit to 171512 or in the seven, you know, just in the 17s, that's great because by the time we actually go apply it, it's going to be exactly where it needs to be. Now it's not always going to drop, but industry shows that it can and may uh, may drop depending on the environmental conditions. Yeah, there's a lot of great stuff there. I, I remember the the best lubrication program that I've ever seen. Uh, shout out to Todd Misanchuk. Um, they actually, so they would bring the, the oil barrels. They were not using bulk storage. They would bring the oil barrels in and hook up a filter, like a kidney loop filter system and filter it until the the particle counter on the filter cart would read just too clean and then they would park it in storage and then filter it as as it would go out into the equipment and i mean it's that's like to me that is the best you can do it like i wouldn't stop at filtering it because it's 1715 like i'm just going to keep going because what's the like there's not really much extra cost to it exactly and you know, when you talk about elements and filter elements, which could be a whole nother conversation, you want to maximize those anyways. And a lot of our filter elements are graded pore designs. And, you know, a particle is not symmetric as a circle, right? So a lot of these particles that we're dealing with are odd shapes and sizes. You know, if it passes through the filter, you know, one way it could fit through and, and miss not getting caught. But then the next time around, it could turn just a little bit and then all of a sudden get caught. And that's something that even goes down to the line of how our particles counted and all this other stuff. So uh, it's just it's interesting when you take the holistic approach and, and not only you, you have the tools to do it, but you also become educated on how things work, especially in the oil analysis field and sort of understand why it's important because you can start connecting the two. And really that comes down to you know, once you can start connecting why it's important in actually doing it, you have now become a lubricant or lubrication champion at your site, which is really the foundation of lubrication excellence at any given company. Because once you have a champion, you're going to be able to have ownership, accountability, and you're going to like and love what you do. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Now, Ed, Obviously, we've kind of touched on how to get it from storage to, well, one is get it in the door, then get it into storage, then get it into the equipment. Now, once it's in the equipment, how do we ensure that we're keeping it clean? 
So that comes down to applying the same principles as we did in storage and handling. We want to make sure it's going in clean. Um, and depending on the application, whether it's a gearbox, uh, a hydraulic system, or a pump, you know, the reservoirs are going to vary. Uh, for critical applications, uh, we want to make sure that we have a dedicated kidney loop system. And in order to really define what's critical, a criticality analysis is going to have to be run. And most companies have that done already, especially for those who have an asset management team. If, if they don't, you know, there's resources out there that can help you do that, no matter if you have 100 assets or 1,000 assets. But criticality is going to be important. If you've got a gearbox that's going to cost you $33,000 an hour, like it did in the mine, then you're going to want to protect that as much as possible. And not only is that kidney loop filtration important, but you also want to seal and protect the machine. So if you've got, you know, these gearboxes, these pumps, these hydraulic systems, and they're vented systems, truly vented systems, you're going to want to protect it with a breather. You're going to want to make sure it's modified for best practice and maintaining uh, a certain cleanliness target, as well as you want to make sure that you are able to sample the reservoir. And the reason why sampling is critical, because whenever you're trying to establish a lubrication program, you really want to actually establish what we call a contamination control strategy. How are you going to handle contaminants as they are inside your machine and are affecting the performance? And in order to effectively start a contamination control strategy, you need to understand what the impact is, and then you need to basically set cleanliness targets, and then you need to take action. So step two of taking action is very important, which comes down to modifying your equipment for best practice. And then after modifying everything, whether it's with a breather, with a breather and quick connects, with a breather, quick connects and filtration, or if, um, depending on the system, if it's if it's like a pump, you may have uh, additional items such as you know like a BSNW bowl um, that allows you to see water ingression in certain applications. You know, once you modify that, then you can go back and you can say, okay, I've got my equipment modified. I can now take a sample, and then I can actually measure those results. So by setting targets, taking action by modifying your equipment and measuring the results through oil sampling. We now have a full loop or a full loop to where once we measure the results, we can go back and say, hey, do I have the right targets? Am I doing everything I need to do in order to make sure I get maximum equipment life? And if not, I need to continue down those three steps and keep repeating them until I get the success that I want and that I desire. I love it. I love it. Absolutely. And and uh, for, I mean, I've given this offer before, but if anyone listening, if you guys have any, you want, like, where should I oil, take an oil sample from or what, what type of fitting should I use on this unit? You, you can feel free to just take a few pictures of your equipment and send me an email, robsreliabilityproject at gmail.com. I'm happy to help you. Um, I definitely, I'm sure Ed will as well. Um, now, Ed, I guess... Just to kind of get back to basics here, you mentioned breathers, and I've walked around a bunch of plants in my life with pink breathers. Do you want to just tell us like what people should be looking for in terms of breathers? Like when do they get used up? How do we know when to change them? That type of stuff. 
Yeah. So when it comes down to, you know, the desk case breathers, the, the breathers that turn from blue to pink, the advantage is it's actually used as a troubleshooting tool. If you didn't know this, this is one of the features that is just outstanding is the color change of the breather tells you what's going on in your system. Now, with the color change, it's actually the direction. So if it's if it's changing color from the bottom to the top, it means that the outside air has more moisture or contaminants than the inside or the loop or the reservoir, the oil reservoir. If it's changing from the top down, it means there's more contaminants in the reservoir than there are outside. Now that's primarily with water. You have a filter element on both. And when it comes to other breathers, you know, they're not going to be able to tell you that. And the reason why is because of the way that the breather is designed. You know, when you're when you're looking at changing a breather and you're looking at trying to get the most value out of it, you want to make sure that you understand what's going on in your system. So if you have a steam leak, all of a sudden, like your steam seal just goes and you've had a breather on there that's been on there for six months and it's been just beautiful. It's, it's slowly changing. And then all of a sudden in one day it turns over and you start seeing pink for a high, high concentration of pink from top to the bottom. It means that something happened to where moisture was able to get in. And we found with, with our customers that that alone helps them identify root causes to have a proactive approach to actually doing maintenance instead of just relying on, oh, it failed, what happened? Let's go do an RCA, okay? And that's something that's unique um, about breathers and what they can do for you. And, you know, if, if your breather's pink, it needs to be changed. If it's a very dark pink, it probably just started to change from blue to pink. But we're really looking for that, that sort of white pinkish color to where it looks like it's been pretty much all used up the colors out of it. And just to, to continue down this road, you know, there's a new product out that doesn't have color change. It actually gives you a real number of how much your breather is saturated. And the beauty about that is not only do you eliminate the color change and, and eliminate someone actually having to view it, you're using a sensor so using sensor technology, it now becomes a tool that you could, you know, access from your phone anywhere because it goes to the cloud. And with this IIoT revolution going on, it's amazing because it can tell you a lot of what's going on, especially with the interfaces that we have. And, you know, it's the first time that I've actually seen it in use was exactly what I was describing as a Steam Lake with a with an application and you know, it's just even even putting new oil, just wet new oil in your machine can cause a breather to, you know, spend really quickly. And when you're talking about, you know, paying for these troubleshooting tools, you want to make sure you're getting the most value out of them, just like we would anything at home. If you buy an appliance, you want to make sure you're going to get at least 10 years out of it. Otherwise, you're not going to buy that. So it's 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 pretty fun to see and also pretty interesting to know that these are a tool 
for you to use, not just a product out there. Absolutely. I love it. And, and like, just, just so people are aware, like if you get water or moisture in your equipment, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to change the oil. You can buy filter carts that come with coalescing filters, which will take out some water. Uh, you can also buy like vacuum dehydration units. Typically those I've only seen on turbines, like super expensive, super critical applications, but that stuff is out there. So it's it's not necessarily like, oh, we got to dump, you know, a thousand liters of oil. You can sometimes get around doing that. I guess, I guess, Ed, you know, we're, we're coming close to wrapping up here. So I'd like to ask you a couple questions. And maybe the first one is like, what are some common mistakes that you see that people make with their lubrication program? And how do we avoid making those? Absolutely. So when it comes down to it, you know, most people want to jump right in and that's great. Um, and they want to start modifying their equipment and they want to start getting things rolling. And the common mistakes that I see is that, you know, people go and modify their equipment, yet they don't have the, the technology inside their lubricant storage and handling room where they don't have filter carts or they don't have you know, oil transfer containers like Isolink to actually transfer oil to their machines. So they're out there modifying everything for best practice and they're sort of jumping the gun. And if you want to do that, you've also got to do the first part, which is the lubricant storage and handling piece. Because if you can start with the lubricant storage and handling piece, then you can, you can modify your critical assets and at least start working on those to where you can prevent or exclude contaminants versus just removing them. And then when you're excluding them, you're also going to be able to remove them if they have already been in the system, such as you got a gearbox that's been in operation for 30 years and you want to start protecting it today. Well, there's still probably a lot of stuff on the bottom of that gearbox that you want to remove just from over the time, whether it's sludge, oxidation byproducts, wear metals, you know, just dirt, depending on the environment. Like in the mining environment, we had all that. So it's it's so critical to be able to start at the beginning of the process. And if if there are, you know, folks out there who are looking for just guidance, you know, I recommend taking just a complimentary survey because most people have started the process and they started the process when someone came in maybe you know, five, six, seven years ago. And then that person left and the lubrication champion left. And all of a sudden it just never went anywhere. So picking up the pieces is also, you know, which can be difficult is also a hurdle sometimes. And, you know, in order to get back on track, we need to, you know, reevaluate what we've already done before continuing. And that survey, how do people get access to that? Yeah, so that survey can be, you know, Rob, if they want to contact you or if they have my content, contact information, uh, which is great. It's complimentary. It's actually on deskcase.com um, under the lubrication consulting uh, area. It's complimentary. You take a free assessment. It basically gives us the ability to rate where you are numerically as well as a qualitative graph. 
And what we do is we give you action items on what the next step should be. So if you were to take a snapshot of where you are today, you may be high in other areas. You may be low in, in, in some. And our goal is to bring them all up to level, but starting with the key points. So we've worked with customers who obviously already have an oil sampling program, but they haven't protected any of their machines. So they're not going to stop taking oil samples, but what they're going to do is they're going to start seeing those intervals being pushed out because they don't need to take them as often because they're not going to have as many failures. So that's where, you know, this assessment is sort of nice because you could have a great program for oil sampling and oil analysis, but now it's just starting at the beginning of process of managing the lubricant as it comes in the door and working its way to it, to the equipment. So they, by the time they are taking an oil sample, they'll, they're able to see, Hey, I put clean oil in this machine while the machine's in operation, while the lubricants, in operation, what's going on with that lubricant. And I think that touches into the topics you started off with um, in this podcast about oil analysis and lubricant degradation, that this piece will definitely close some of the gaps. Absolutely. And so if you're looking for a link to that survey, I'll, I'll drop it in the podcast notes. Now, Ed, kind of to wrap up here, what are your top lubrication excellence tips? The first is make sure you're educated. It's, it's great to have the tools, but like with any job, we need to know why we're doing it in the first place. Um, when it comes down to what kind of education do you need, I would say find a partner that you trust and make sure that you know they can provide all of your needs. So can they provide the education? Can they provide you the tools to be successful? You know, when it comes down to trying to manage a lubrication program, you need to be educated and you need the right tools. And without those two, and I would say that they do work together, the tool, the education and the tools, you, you, you're going to have struggles that you're not going to be able to overcome without paying for it in some fashion. Now, a third piece would be, you know, make sure that someone at the plant owns lubrication. Make sure someone at the plant owns vibration. You know, these two programs, vibration and lubrication, actually go hand in hand. And it's it's great to see how they do because if you fix the lubrication issues, you'll have less vibration because you'll have less wear. And with particle contamination equating to 80% of all mechanical wear, that tells the whole story. You won't have vibration issues and as long as you will, we all have vibration issues on the lubricant side or caused by the lubricant, as long as the lubricant is clean and dry. Now, I'm not saying that you won't be able to catch things such as, you know, foundation issues and all that. But when we're talking about machine reliability, if you keep your, your lubricant free of contaminants, you will have three to eight times equipment life extension. So those are some big wins. Absolutely. So Ed, you know, I appreciate you coming on to the show today and, and spreading your knowledge with us. Now, do you have anything to plug? Like, are you going to be at any conferences coming up? Note that this will be out in 2020. Um, and yeah, where can people find you? Yeah. So, you know, I, I'm on LinkedIn. 
I love to help people find solutions. I love to help people solve problems. As I mentioned in my introduction, I am, uh, I'm an engineer, but more hands-on. I, I like to help people do the extra and the, go the extra mile. Um, so LinkedIn, just under Ed Duda. Um, you know, conferences, we're going to be at many conferences coming in 2020. Um, I invite you all to come stop by a booth. And if there's anything, any questions or anything that you need, please feel free to reach out. You know, we've we've come to the point to where, you know, the market, if you think about how many people know about lubrication excellence, it's, it's a very small market. And if you think about the opportunity that's available, we're talking millions and billions of dollars if everyone were to do it. And we know every, every company's in a different stage and some are starting up, some are, you know, just continuing operations and some are shutting down. If you're looking to extend your plant's life and trying to increase the bottom line, which will help increase the top line by creating more products, protecting your lubricants and protecting the machines that have lubricants in them is the way to go. And then the last thing I have here for, for just a little plug for desk case is, you know, as we continue down this internet of things um, journey and even trying to make sure real and, and profitable solutions are out there, you know, our goal is to make sure you're profitable. And we know that if you use desk case products, you will be able to achieve the results that you want to achieve. And I encourage all of you, if, if you are even looking just for a consultation, we have that complimentary and we are more than happy to come out your site to help you solve all of your contamination related issues surrounding lubricants. That's, that's a good offer. Now, you know, Ed, Ed, I appreciate you spending your Saturday with us. It, you know, it's it's coming up. It's college football, so we got to get you out of here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, uh, yeah, Ed, I appreciate you coming on. Uh, for everyone who's still listening, yeah, if you're looking for any help with your lubrication program, I'll put Ed's uh, a link to Ed's LinkedIn on in the podcast notes so definitely feel free to reach out to him or you can definitely feel free to reach out to me as well that's i'm happy to help you as well thanks for listening and we'll see you all next week